and Happy New Year. Welcome to ASMR Tirar and the secret audio files of Dr. Andrew Michaels. Today, the year 2019 is coming to a close, prompting Dr. Andrew Michaels to share a story of the past with you, one that brings him to the brink of the end of time. Good evening. My name is Dr. Andrew Michaels. I wish I was coming to you on better terms than I am right now. I wish I could somehow tell you the thoughts that are going through my mind right now. I I can't explain what I experienced when I went to the cabin with my detail of armed guards. We got a call from the midwife. There was a woman in extreme labor. I was part of the detail sent by the government of the United States. With us were a pair of doctors, both gynecologists and very experienced with birth, and of course my training is in astrobiology. Why were they even sending me for this birth? I made a joke, is this a second coming, is it a virgin birth, because I don't think you need me there in that case. My superiors looked at me with dead eyes and a lot of anger in their thoughts and said, this is no time to joke. You have to attend this birthing. I made small talk with the doctors in the van as we drove deep into the woods of Illinois. We had four armed Marines with us. They were new, fresh recruits that were guards at our facility at the Department of Navy. Very good young men. Of course, green and new at their jobs, taking every little command and every little word we said very seriously. There was a supervisor with them, so... With the four guards, the supervisor, myself, and two doctors and a nurse, there was enough of us to fill a 15-passenger van, all equipment aside. I thought it was a little overkill that the guards were armed so heavily, and I asked a lot of questions, but basically my details on the matter were that the woman was not having a normal birth. Everything was to go expected, and we wouldn't even be needed, but in this case, everything was going astray, wrong. Nothing was as it should be. There was some interference with the birth, and that was why they went so deep into the woods. They were hiding from people, trying to 
stop the birth. I didn't know exactly who we were talking about, but I was assured that my job was to make sure that person or persons didn't stop this woman from having her baby. I made a joke as a father of three and said, well, I got news for you. <laughs> that baby's coming whether this fellow wants it to or not. I pulled my own sidearm out, my forty-five nine eleven Colt, and I checked it, made sure it was prepared and loaded. I felt my ankle and my thirty-eight was in place around my lower part of my body. I always kept myself ready in these situations, though my experience is the gun was more to keep me feeling safe than actually saving me. Rarely did pulling a firearm ever actually stop the kind of things I encounter on these kind of adventures. But it was a reassurance that I was ready and I was armed. And if anything came up, I could deal with it the best I could. The Marines were quite heavily armed, as I spoke of earlier. Each one had a carbine rifle. They even brought extra ammunition. They brought along some pretty heavy technology. They even had a case for grenades and I thought they even packed a mortar in the back of the van. I found this quite unusual, and I even asked, and they just looked at me. The supervisor said, they really aren't supposed to discuss that with you, sir. I would have liked a Marine officer. I don't know why we had a civilian supervisor in charge of a detail of Marines. It's never a good situation. I suspected this supervisor was actually CIA, and I knew it was either him or it was one of the female nurses, definitely a CIA influence in the van, the way everybody was being very cautious and not talking. The nurse would actually be a better candidate for the CIA agent, but they were always watching, recording. They tended to keep a close eye on my movements, not because the government didn't trust me, but because I quite often dealt with things that the CIA knew I may get a little over my head on. We pulled up a narrow road, went through many gravel trails. How we found this cabin, I'll never know. Our marine driver pulled over and said, We've arrived. Please wait till we get all our equipment off the van before you disembark. The four marines and the supervisor, of course, got out first. We sat in the van, the two nurses and the two doctors, and myself. We just waited. There was no sense in being in a hurry. And of course, there's no reason to rush when a woman's having a baby. The first thing we have to do is make sure all our guns are oiled and in position. But we took our time. We were patient. Of course, we can't do anything till we get there. 
The doctors, of course, were quite adamant that when they get there, please let them take the lead. That was not a problem with me. And soon enough, they gave us the signal to come out of the van, and we did. The doctors only brought their bags with them, not a lot of equipment, and they went directly into the house. You could hear the woman yelling. She was in extreme labor. Things were progressing very fast. I peeked in and I asked one of the nurses, please let me know if she's dilated where she's at. The nurse come back and signaled me with her fingers. The woman was definitely four to five centimeters dilated, I think is the right term. I don't actually give birth to babies. <laughs> I'm not fond of it myself. I'm one of those dads that would prefer sitting in the waiting room smoking a cigar. And I don't even smoke cigars. Believe me, smoking a cigar is much more appealing than seeing a baby be born. It's quite messy, contrary to popular belief. And the bed the woman was laying on was starting to show those signs of the birth. The women were quickly trying to clean and sterilize the area. It was a rustic cabin with a huge back bedroom and a big open room in the front. There was oak tables and chairs. Everything looked handmade. It was a beautiful cabin, actually, though stoically decorated. It had some very fine and expensive pieces. There was a chandelier hanging from the center of the great room. It was huge, very ornate. It almost looked like something I've seen before, maybe in a department store, and it looked quite out of place in the vaulted ceiling of this cabin. But then again, nothing quite looked exactly right in this cabin. The chairs, the table, they were, look, they were a little big for a human being, not quite normal size. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Almost like for people that were seven or eight feet tall. I actually thought it was quite nice being almost six foot four myself. I thought it would be nice to have furniture that fit me a little bit better than average furniture. I ran my hand across the hard-hewn oak table top, and it was smooth as glass. It looked rough, but on touching it, it was smooth and quite well covered with varnish, sealed perfectly. It was like a piece of polished glass, even though it looked splintered and raw on top. It was so smooth, I took my hand across it again, and in the reflection of the table, I saw my own face. And one of the guards walked up behind me. I said, is everything okay, young man? And he said, sir, I need you to back up. I need you to get behind me. Please get behind me. It started happening very fast. There was a presence outside the door. Two Marines had bolted the door and actually put wood across it, sealed us in tight. The door was visibly buckling from their attempts to stop whatever it was from coming inside. The two Marines backed up about ten feet away. The room was about thirty feet deep. A great room, of course, but still only ten feet from the door. 
it suddenly dawned on me from my combat experience that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I ran up and told both of them, get out from in front of the door. And just as I pushed one of them to the left, as I stepped to the side, the door exploded into a million fragmentations. It completely splintered. The young marine who was going to the right instead of the left caught some of it. His arm completely shattered by the pieces of wood and metal that flung from the door with the speed of a grenade. He fell down and dropped his weapon, and it skidded across the floor. The other two marines that were standing back by the door where the woman was giving birth immediately opened fire. They fired several rounds into the darkness outside the door. Whether they hit something or not, I do not know. But I do know it didn't have any effect. A tall man, seven and a half feet tall, a beard all the way down to his knees, stepped through the door, covered in a huge woolen and fur robe. He looked like the antithesis of Santa Claus, his bald head starkly polished compared to his dirty gray white beard that looked like it was full of gnats. His hands were long and spindly like a spider's claws, and it looked like he hadn't clipped or cleaned his fingernails in weeks. He ran both hands down the door jam and ripped part of the door jam molding away and flung it towards the two marines who had fired on him earlier. Both young men ducked down and just missed being pierced by the wood. It shattered into the frame of the bedroom. Both marines were down now towards the knees, kneeling. One pounded on the door. He's here. Do not open the door to the supervisor on the other side. It was the four marines and myself versus whatever this man was. He put his foot completely through the oaken floorboard. When I say oak, I'm talking this was built sturdily for people of great size, and he put his foot with a simple leather moccasin right through the floorboard and snapped it completely up in two pieces. He grabbed it and used it like a baseball bat. The marine that was hurt on the right, just getting to his feet, was too close. I tried to make my way across the room, but I would have been directly in his swing. It was too late. That young man barely stood up with his hand holding his shoulder that was wounded just in time to see the strike coming across his face. The man was so strong and so brutal with his strike that he nearly took the man's head completely off his shoulders. He shattered into the wall, into a broken pile of bones and meat and splattered blood. He looked like a raggedy hand doll thrown across the girl's bedroom. He was completely broken. He was dead before he touched the ground. In my furious reaction, yelling, screaming at him, 
bullets began to fly past me. The two at the door regained their setting and started opening fire with their rifles. Bullets ripping into this man's robes, but obviously not having any effect. The Marine beside me got ahead of me. Sir, you must stay back. With one forceful push, he got between me and the intruder. He pushed me back a few feet, and he opened fire on the man. It was a brave move, but I could tell it was a mistake. He raised the oaken beam in his hand, the floorboard that he was using, like a ball bat, and he went to strike down like a man would with a saber or a machete. He was going to cut the man defending me, standing in front of me, right down. Not being rude and not wanting to disobey orders, I also didn't want to see this young Marine die. He was a good kid. They all were. And one death was enough for me today. I pulled my service revolver, my forty-five. I reached up and grabbed the man by the collar and pulled him back just in time for him to miss the swing. He did have his weapon up in front of him to block it. But the strike hit the weapon and snapped it in half, destroying his rifle. If he hadn't moved back just a few more inches, it would have come directly down on his head, and his death would have been insured. He stumbled back from my pull, and I said, Get your sidearm. Look what I'm doing. And I fired directly with my forty-five at the housing that held the chandelier, above the giant's head. His head was only a few feet below the bottom of the chandelier, a crystalline structure with a million pieces of glass. I thought it might actually slow him down for a few minutes. I could hear, even in all of this turmoil, the doctors in the other room saying, come on, one more push, one more push, and the giant heard it too. His eyes turned to the door, and he threw the stick in his hand, the floorboard. He just missed piercing one of the Marines right through the neck. It went right through the door. I heard a guttural scream. Somebody on the other side was struck by that. I wouldn't know until the door was completely down, and that wasn't going to take long from what I've seen. He went to take a step forward right when my bullet struck home. Perfect shot. Actually, it wasn't perfect. I kept firing till it fell. But call me a perfectionist. I want to act like I was a good shot. The chandelier came careening down. The metal framework and all the glass beadwork, all the glass pieces, all the electrical lighting came down and shattered all around the giant's head and body. It twisted him up. It confused him. It slowed him down for a second. But I just realized I only slowed him down for a second. And worse yet, I just gave him shrapnel to throw back at us. I screamed to the other two Marines, quickly, with me. And I ran over with the one guarding me and I grabbed the backside of that huge oaken table. I started sliding it 
towards the door and the other two Marines. They got the idea what I was doing. We were definitely going to get a last stand, if nothing else. We slid the table across and all dove behind it, just as the giant began to spin like a top. Shards of metal from the chandelier and pieces of glass were striking the wall with incredible force, embedding themselves everywhere. We were protected by the table, and the metal rings of the chandelier flew above our heads, but we were safe. In those few seconds, hid behind the table on its side, we were protected. This was our Alamo, and we had to stop him here, even if it was for only a few seconds. I said, concentrate, shoot him low, shoot him low, try and take out his feet, try and take out the floor beneath him, anything to slow him down, otherwise it's not going to work, concentrate your fire, ready, we all, we all came up above the table at the same time and opened fire with everything we had, he was only about three feet in front of us, trying to close the distance, our bullets did have some effect, even if he was invulnerable to gunfire. It was tearing into him. The bullets ripping into his body were tripping him up. He fell, and his two hands landed on the table. His weird, strange, spider-like hands landing at the very top. He lifted his head up, and right there one of the Marines took his M1 and buried it directly into the side of his head, firing his weapon at point-blank range on his temple. It was a brave move. The gun buckled under the explosive blast of the bullet. His head bounced back, not a mark on him, but the flash on his head was clear that it did burn him a little bit. Oh, you can burn then, huh? I said it, but I didn't have time to react. He had a hold of the table. The legs were what were keeping us between him and the other room. He pulled the table to the right and literally, using the table legs and the table itself, scooped all four of us up and threw us across the room. We were shattered and landed in a pile of metal, glass, and oak wood, the table exploding against the wall. One Marine was unconscious. Both lost their weapons. They were down to their sidearms. My sidearm was gone. I had nothing left but my thirty-eight in my ankle holster, and I knew it was a waste of time to even reach for it. But what could I do? The only thing I could think of, and it was a crazy move, but I did it. I got up on my knees. I told the other Marine, look, the fire hit him with a log. Just as he reached up in the door jamb of the bedroom door and tore it down. And when I say he tore down the door, he literally tore an eight by eight hole in the wall. He ripped the entire door and frame and part of the wall fixture out and threw it towards us. The Marine just missed it. I got clipped in the leg. I thought. Somebody had knocked the wind out of me. I fell forward. Did he take my leg completely off at the ankle? Luckily, it looked like a glancing blow, but I was bleeding profusely below the knee. 
I tried to stand. My leg wasn't working. I couldn't even tell if it was broken or just in horrible pain. Hit him with that log, I said as I fell to the floor. The Marine, and I give this man all the courage in the world behind him. He had guts, bravery beyond his years, reached into the fire, grabbed a log completely on fire, about three and a half, not three and a half foot long, about maybe 30 inches long. It was big for him to pick up. His hands instantly burned, threw it, and hit the giant across the chest. It did work. His beard and his robe caught on fire. Not badly, but enough to slow him down. The log bounced and rolled across the floor, and we could easily see in the bedroom the baby's head was out. One of the doctors was impaled against the wall. He obviously was killed by the strike. The nurses were cowering down. The human doctor, as brave as a person could be, stood there. Either he births the baby, or it's over. The only people there between the giant and the baby were the midwife and the supervisor. He was holding what looked to be a three fifty seven revolver. The midwife was standing there holding a towel. It didn't look good. The old man was screaming now. Look what you've done to me. Look what you've done to me. His beard, patting it out, patting the flames out. There was dust and debris flying off of him. The marine was on his knees. His hands burned. The other one scrambling, trying to get his weapon, trying to load it. You could tell he had been hit hard, but he was trying to move. I couldn't tell if he had a concussion or if he was just wounded. Everybody with seconds to do something. I couldn't even reach for my gun. I couldn't think of another thing to do. All I could do is stare at him. And I said, why are you doing this? And he said, I got to stop him. I can't let it end this way. It can't end this way. And I noticed he raised his hand and he went, no, no. At first I thought, at first I thought it was the fire damage, smoke coming off his hand, but it was actually dust. I looked and through the window into the bedroom, not the window, but the hole between me and the giant. I could see the baby's shoulder coming out, the doctor pushing the umbilical cord off to the side. Come on, one more push. And the giant screamed, No, it can't end this way. He took his fist and he grabbed a side of the frame and ripped an oaken piece of structural wood right out of the wall. He ripped it out and raised it like a spear, ready to pierce the doctor. The marine with the burnt hands fell down between him and the baby and the supervisor. The supervisor unloaded his gun. The wet nurse, the midwife, raised the towel across her face, waiting to be killed, standing her ground. It was an unbelievable sight, and the piece of wood he raised with his hand suddenly flew backwards out of his hand. He couldn't grip it, his hand disintegrating, his hand evaporating into dust, his other hand now to his side. No, 
this way. It just can't. And his arms began to disintegrate. He fell to his knees. No, no, I need more time. There must be more time. And the baby came out completely into the doctor's arms. The doctor screaming for a towel. His back to this whole thing. Inches from death. Inches from death. That brave man never took his sight off the baby's mother. Delivered the baby. His voice of authority screaming for the towel. The midwife turned. And they wrapped the baby up. And placed it on the mother's womb. Whatever was in that room was disintegrating with great expediency, rotting away into dust before our eyes. I managed to get myself up to a sitting position. I looked the giant in the eye. The other marine now, his weapon loaded, squared off, aiming his rifle. I said, just wait, just wait. It's over. It's over. It's over, son. It's over. Who are you? I said to the man. He said, I'm Father Time. I wasn't ready to give up. There needed to be more time. I just needed a little more. And with that, our eyes locked. I could see the pain and anguish in him. He could wish all he wanted. But the end comes for all of us sooner or later. And in moments, he disintegrated and he was gone. With the threat over, the Marine still standing in front of me helped me to my feet. He took me into the bedroom area. One of the nurses immediately started cutting away my pants to see what was wrong with my leg. It was badly injured, but it was okay. I wasn't going to lose my leg. I told her, let's just bandage it up for now until we can get somewhere. I don't think it's broken. The doctor was dead. The supervisor had lived. The Marine with his hands burned were only second degree. He would heal. The one that was unconscious regained consciousness very quickly. He had a concussion, but he would live. Only two people died that day to make sure that baby was born safely. I turned to the supervisor. He said, good job. I said, I don't know about that. That was pretty bad. Yeah, but you did it. You just had to stop him. I looked at this new baby across the room and I said, What would have happened if we failed? And he said, I don't know. I really don't know. I have no idea what his motivations were. To this day, 
maybe he just had fear of death. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just glad we have one more chance, one more year. Just a little more time to keep things going. I hope you have a happy new year and thank you for joining me tonight. I just wanted to get that off my chest. I'll see all of you soon. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us for ASMR Tierra de Huello. Remember to stay tuned for the next episode, coming soon. When you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review this podcast. If you are interested in additional ASMR content, you may view our library of videos at youtube.com slash The theme song, Atlantis, is by Jason Shaw of Audionautics.com and is used by permission. Correspondence, including questions or requests, may be sent to tirardehuello at gmail.com. On behalf of Dr. Andrew Michaels, thank you.